Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show from New York City. Rich Velotis, how are you, brother? It's great to be here, man. You know, you've said that three times because, (laughs) you know, we've had some technical difficulties, but the thing about a podcast is you just, like, it's part of life. I mean, you've you've heard podcasts where there's been issues before, you didn't know it, but this one, we're going to be honest about it. Because we think that the deeply formed life, you know what it is? It's an honest life. It's a transparent life. And that's what we're going to be right here. It's a vulnerable life, absolutely. It is vulnerable. Compare this technical difficulties that we've experienced over the last 45 minutes with the pandemic. It's nothing in comparison to that, is it? Um, It's a bit close, bro. This was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 gosh. No. Uh, It hasn't been been that bad? We're getting by. Listen, it's it's my fault. My Wi-Fi has been uh, suspect today, so I take the blame. We don't need to point fingers here. (laughs) We're We're all friends here. I told you this just a second ago. I'm going to tell you again. I've had listeners say, we want Rich on the podcast. So there's love for you on the podcast already. The book, The Deep Form, I like the book. I'm going to rip off some content already for sermons. So like, this is a safe space for a great podcast to happen. I love it. Love it. We're going to get it right this time. We got this. We got this. Now, I told you up front that your shirt, the second I saw you, you have a Mets shirt on. I said, this is ominous foreshadowing. And that has come to fruition in substantial ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 eerie how terrible this has been. But uh, but you pointed it out first, Luke, and this is our first time meeting, and you just pointed it out. So um, I know we're not supposed to be pointing fingers here, but uh, <laughs> hey, man. Here's the thing that you you come from a more charismatic tradition than me, and in my tradition, the Holy Spirit kind of like got off the clock as soon as we got the Bible. And so the Holy Spirit's been kind of just like hanging around for the last, you know, 1700 years. But in your tradition, like you actually value the full Trinity. And so maybe you can interpret this in a way that I wasn't raised to do. Well, very simply, whenever there's technical difficulties, um, Satan's at work. So that's all you need. That's all you need to know about technical difficulties and Pentecostals or charismatic. So, um, so the devil's at work, but uh, Jesus is too, I suppose. Okay. So we're just going to say, not today, devil. That's right. Not today. And we're going to push through this. We'll push through. Yeah. Here's the thing. Uh, I feel like I like you more after these last 45 minutes, <laughs> which is a good thing. You know, like they say, for a couple, if you, if you want to figure out if you really should marry this person, go on a road trip. Yeah. And I feel like for us to be friends, we needed a 45-minute, uh, you know, uh, technical difficulty. And yeah. I feel like we can put, we've got through this, we can get through anything. I, I think you're right. And uh, let's see if this messes up. Now, if it does mess up at this point, then our, our friendship probably doesn't have, have a long future, but uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> oh, wow. Now there's pressure. This is the end of, this is the end of it, Rich. So, okay, that's fine. Like, I'll, uh, I'm going to just uh, go on faith. Like, this is, I'm, in the words of Bon Jovi, we're living on prayer. Not just this podcast, our friendship. Yeah, which yeah. and Bon Jovi. By the way, I uh, I sing that song every at every Christmas party for our staff. So uh, really, yes, indeed. How did that start? Um, I, I just love karaoke, and um, I, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Um, mm. If you're into that stuff, I'm and, all into that. Yeah, so love fun parties. Uh, and I end up throwing myself on the floor at the end of the song. So um, it's wonderful. Wow. I do think one of the great like bar questions 
uh, for a non-alcoholic bar, of course. But a bar question that I always ask is, you know, what is your karaoke song? What uh, what's your favorite fictitious president that's been on TV? And the third song, the third question is, what song would you walk out to if you had to do a UFC cage fight? And so you've already answered one of the three. Yeah, so Bar- you well Bart- Bartlett will be the other. Yes, uh, West Wing, that is the right answer. And in t- UFC, um, man, um, I can't say I really watch UFC, man. That's kind of like for Mark Driscoll and those guys. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, 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 what, what, what song? It, it has to be probably something from DMX, for sure. Okay, DMX. All right. DMX. With the barking and stuff? 100%. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Now, in the book, you talk about how you have influence from all many of the different strands that we have in Christianity, from charismatic to, you know, conservative to, you know, progressive. They're all having an influence on you. It sounds like the one strand that you don't want to glean from is kind of like the bro Christianity of Mark Driscoll with the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with the affliction shirts and the like the shredded jeans from 15 years ago do you think that's an opportunity for growth for you that i just pointed out definitely not uh <laughs> it, it, yeah there, there's there are certain areas that i'll just uh uh I, i'm quite content um not diving too deeply into okay all right that's fine that's fine <laughs> now in, in the okay we're gonna we're, in the book uh which is titled the deeply formed life you tell a great story about your conversion. So you're 19, and you're not listening to Mark Driscoll sermons, Mm -mm. and you stumble into, like, a storefront charismatic church. Spanish-speaking, right? Pentecostal church. Pentecostal church, and you have, like, the full Pentecostal conversion experience. 100%. Not just me. uh, 14 of my family members as well. So uh, 15 of us, my, my mother, my father, my younger brother, my four, my three younger sisters, uh, cousins, uncles, and God's spirit was so powerful that night. I, I know if my chihuahua Milo was there, he would have come to Jesus as well. Uh, but yes, 15 of us came to Christ on, on one night. So what happened? So it's an evening service. Five, 5 p.m. evening service, yeah. Okay, so do you guys go to dinner? Like, first of all, do you guys go to dinner afterwards? And the real question is, like, what do you guys say after that? Like, when you walk out, like, when 15 people have been converted? So awkward um, because we're at the altar. You know, it's, it's probably 100 people in the church. And uh, we're at the altar in tears saying yes to Christ. When we got home, everyone was kind of just not making eye contact. It was like, uh, this was just weird. We never cried in front of each other like that before. <laughs> uh, and I remember my father just saying like, hey, let's try, let's go again next Sunday. And we're like, oh yeah, let's do it again. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's what we did. But that first night was incredibly awkward. No one made eye contact at home. And um, we talked a little bit about it the next day, but uh, we kept going, that's for sure. Yeah, so you go back the next week and it, it sounds like it's stuck because... You go to college, you go to seminary, and you know for the last seven years, have you been on staff at New Life Fellowship? Twelve years, uh, seven as the lead pastor. Okay, all right. And does does the family come to New Life Fellowship? My family, so we're from uh, everyone in Brooklyn, born and raised in Brooklyn, but my my family moved out to my parents and uh, siblings moved out to Florida some seventeen years ago or so. That's right. You tell a story in the book about they're in yeah, Florida, yeah. vacation yeah. in Carolinas. That's right. right. Which is meet in the middle. That's right. right. 
Do you think that they moved to Florida because they would rather not feel obligated to listen to you preach every Sunday or just for the weather? No, it's funny because uh, I have the most supportive parents. My father, here's a quick story. My father would drive me to these storefront Spanish-speaking churches in Brooklyn and in the Bronx my first year of being a Christian. I would just get invited to speak at these churches of 20 and 25 people. Yeah. And uh, he'd drive me, and I'd preach, and in classic kind of Pentecostal evangelical fashion, I'd do an altar call. And the first time, uh, no one responded. And then my dad starts walking down the aisle. I was like, wow, God really touched my dad. This is awesome. <laughs> Started praying for him. Then he drove me to the next church, and I made an altar call, and nobody responded. Then my dad starts walking down again. I said, huh, uh, I guess God touched my dad again. By the third time, I realized, this man feels really bad for me. And he's been coming down to the altar every time. So every time my dad would move, I would just like hand the mic over to the pastor and say, all right, service is over. But, uh, <laughs> but he, they were very supportive. Uh, they moved there because they wanted different weather. <laughs> okay, all right. I love, I love that story of your dad coming forward. Uh, that's like for, you know, for me, I was in West Texas when I was doing the, you know, 20 member churches I was preaching at when I was, you know, nineteen twenty, yeah. And uh, my parents would, would attend. They lived in West Texas as well. And my mom realized that I would have to do the whole show, like, you know, leading singing. <laughs> we do Bible class before. And like, I can't sing, like even karaoke, I don't sing because I, you know, I respect the gifts that God has and hasn't given me. Yes. But I would have to leave singing. And so I would say like the first, like my, and like of my hope is built. I would, and then my mom would take over from like the front row. She would lead the singing, which now my dad never came forward during the altar call, but, uh, you know, they were still there. So that's good enough, I guess. That support is important, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So you're there. Um, your dad's driving you around. You go to seminary in, is it in New York? In New York. Yep. And, uh, uh, what seminary was it? I, I went to Nyack College and went to Alliance Theological Seminary. Okay. And then right out of there, do you find yourself a new life, or is there another church in between seminary I, and new life? I, I actually was on staff for about three years at this church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle, which oh, yeah. is this massive church with a world-famous choir. That's where I met my wife. So I was there for about three years before joining staff at New Life. Yeah, I was actually there... Uh, last fall, back when we like could get on planes and stuff, mm-hmm. and I went went a trip there uh, to New York, and uh, we went over for the Wednesday night prayer gathering. Yep. And pastor invited me and three uh, pastor buddies to go like into his like super fancy office. Yeah. Which I'm like, I would love to be a pastor in New York just for this office. <laughs> and well, uh, well, he's probably the only one in New York who has that kind of office, but it's uh, it's it was pretty it's pretty nice, huh? Yeah, I feel like I always say. His last name wrong. Simbola? Am I saying Simbola, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jim yeah. Simbola. And so he was super great, super hospital, gave us an hour of time, prayed with us. And then at the end of service, again, like I come from the Churches of Christ where, like, we're, we're now cool with the Holy Spirit, but like g- growing up, like, you know, it was like the weird uncle, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. It's still part of the family, but we don't want him at most gatherings. And so at the end, he invites me and these other three buddies of mine to come up front and say, all right, we're going to pray over these four pastors. And it was such a great experience. So I assume that you're just trained to pray every time you see a pastor because that's what happened to me the one time I was there uh, from time to time but I, I, Brooklyn Tabernacle although I was there and I come from a Pentecostal background they weren't as formative uh, for me so okay. um, uh, while I can do that that's not my MO uh, you know in terms of just hey it's easy pastor let's just pray over them I love doing it but that, 
they have a particular anointing for that. Yes. Do you write your sermons beforehand, or do you have the Holy Spirit like, like just give it to you as you go? Because that's I, I like- write every single word, every <laughs> single pause. Uh, I write about two to two thousand to twenty five hundred words each Sunday. And so I'm a, I believe the Holy Spirit meets us in our preparation, not just in our delivery. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the more prepared we are, the more spontaneous we can be in the moment. So uh, often Pentecostals are just very lazy uh, as opposed to being spirit-led. Wow. And I say that as someone from a Pentecostal tradition. Yeah, but I would, I would never say that because I'm not a tradition. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you came in pretty strong right there. <laughs> But I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I write everything out as, as well. And uh, thank you for not uh, spirit shaming me there, because uh, yeah, I feel, I feel good there. I feel good there. Okay, so uh, in the book, you talk about um, speaking about race in church, and you talk about the two kind of main critiques that I feel like I've heard over and over again. Now you. We just talked a second ago, and you gave me the third experience, which I think is a really valid one too. Which is, you know, the first two are. You know, white people saying, yeah, I didn't have slaves. And then the second one is, hey, just preach about the gospel. Mm-hmm. And you remind us of the third option, which was the experience of immigrants. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, New Life is, uh, you know, a very diverse congregation, 75 nations represented. Half of Queens is foreign born. And so we have, uh, I have, I come into contact with lots of first and second generation immigrants. And it's often the case when I talk about race or talk about uh, the United States in particular, that uh, uh, folks from different countries would say, Rich, you don't know how bad it was in my country of origin. We should be very grateful. And so the third kind of argument in, in which people push back against matters of race is from the grateful immigrant perspective, um, which uh, it gets very complicated as well, because while that might be true, we are now here. Uh, and so let's address what's going on here. Yeah, for sure. Our, our church has probably on you know, any given Sunday, you know, 50 to 75 uh, refugees from uh, the Congo, from uh, Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's a real great blessing the way that they have uh, served and led our church in ways that, uh, you know, we couldn't have gotten there on our own. And, you know, that is kind of the experience you have so many people who are so grateful because America has been this great opportunity where obviously if you live through a genocide uh, mm-hmm. like unfortunately we have friends from Rwanda who have you know it's, it's night and day different but like you said um, to not say that this situation we're in right now can't be better and that God can't continue to work is uh, kind of shortchanging what I feel like God wants for us without question absolutely yeah. Okay. So the first argument. So you, you, you tell a story about uh, after service, one of your congregants, a kind, generous, older white man, approaches you in the lobby and whispers. I like that you said he whispered. He whispered like he's talking normal, and he goes, "Rich." Yes. Right. <laughs> Rich. Because I like I, I've gotten the whisper too. Like in the lobby, like I've, it's just a hey, hey, look, look, look. Um, and then here's the real deal. Let me whisper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he whispers, "Rich, please don't lump me in with those people. I never owned a slave." Hmm. Which is true, but then you have this great line in the book about how no one wants to be labeled for their forefather since obviously this guy doesn't want to, I don't want to be either. But then your line is this, but the residue of racism exists. Mm-hmm. What can help us unearth and become aware of the residue of racism that exists around us and in us, in our heart? Well, I mean, uh, part, part of that is 
uh, recognizing the ways that we've been socialized uh, to see others. Um, I, 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 you know, I talk about the deeply formed life because the ways that we have been shaped by our families of origin, by the surrounding world, we, we have been deeply formed by particular narratives, particular theologies and perspectives. Uh, and part of that undoing is growing in our own awareness and self-awareness in terms of how we've been socialized. And so while it might be true that someone says, I never owned slaves before, uh, yes, certainly. At the same time, we've all been socialized to create hierarchies in terms of who's important, uh, you know, what are the, you know, what, what Brian Stevenson would call the, 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 the narrative of racial difference, all the ways that we have been socialized to see some as superior and some as inferior. So I think uh, one of the reasons why I love the genogram, for example, uh, out of family systems theory is because it helps me to recognize the ways that I have been shaped by a family, my, my family of origin to see particular people. And in so doing, I think it positions us to ask good questions about what does the gospel say to this? What does it mean to follow Jesus in this world and push back against those particular stories and narratives and frameworks? Uh, but I think part of it just begins with our own willingness to be patient and introspective with the ways we've been formed. Yeah, here's, uh, here's a quote from Brian Stevenson from your book. He, said, he says, The great evil of American slavery was not involuntary servitude and forced labor. To me, the great evil of slavery was the narrative of racial difference, the mm-hmm. ideology of white supremacy that we create to make ourselves feel comfortable with enslaving people who are black. We've never addressed that legacy. Mm-hmm. And so if it's not just the act of enslaving and creating someone to be forced labor and mistreating them, but there is an ideology which enables that sort of um, reprehensible behavior that yeah. we can say the reprehensible behavior isn't there anymore, but we don't address that sort of ideology which is still in the subconscious. Yeah, and, and by refusing to address the ideology, the actual forms uh, uh, look different. From, from one generation to the next. And so in one generation, it might look like slavery. In the next, it might look like Jim Crow laws. In the next, it might look like mass incarceration. And so uh, although the form might look different, if the ideology remains, um, it'll just manifest in different ways. So get rid of slavery, sure. Uh, but there's still going to be power structures that subject others uh, to subhuman treatment and uh, to see some as inferior and some as superior. Yeah, okay. So you preach about this in church. And mm-hmm. people hear this, and someone's going to go, okay, all right, fine, I get it. I hear this on the news. I, you know, I see the protest. I, I see this all around. I come to church because I just want to hear the gospel. I don't yeah. want to hear this. You've received that email, I assume, multiple times. You've heard, had people leave your church because of that. Oh, and yeah. uh, you know, anyone who's ever talked about it uh, probably, I assume, has heard that as well. When you get that, what's your response? Um, depends what day of the week. <laughs> if I've had my devotion time with Jesus, uh, it comes across a little different. And if I'm not as triggered, but let's try to look at the positive side. If I'm responding, I, I think what I'm trying to do for folks who uh, give me that kind of pushback is, uh, first of all, uh, clarify definitions. And the two words that I am constantly redefining for people, and again, this doesn't always fix it because most of the challenges are emotional and not theological. Uh, It's uh, what is the gospel and what is race or racism? 
And I come back to defining and redefining those two words over and over and over again. And so I find it to be a good discipleship opportunity to say, well, when we say gospel, what do we mean? When we say racism, what do we mean? Uh, And uh, for some, they're willing to hear that and engage in further dialogue. For others, they're saying uh, this sounds like socialism or whatever you want to call it. And so we're going to move on. Um, But I think my task as a pastor is to help people at least, if we're going to have a conversation, let's at least try to be on the same page in terms of how we're defining terms. And then we could decide if we want to continue or not. Okay, I want to get you to define those terms in just one second. But you you had this little nugget you skipped right over. You said most of the time it's emotional. Yeah. Tell me about that. I I, I believe that um, transformation... It does not happen just on a uh, rational, cerebral, theological level. I think what's happening is much deeper beneath the surface. And when I talk about emotional, I think we are often governed by our fears, governed by our anxiety. And so why do people feel a certain way about black people? Well, they've been fed particular stories and narratives that go beyond just... Uh, your rationality, it's deepened now into your emotionality. Uh, And so if we can now help people to see there is a layer of transformation um, that we want to uh, focus on, I think that'll help us for sure. What kind of stories have we been told about black people? Oh, that they are inherently more violent, that they are inherently less uh, trustworthy, uh, that they are... uh, inherently not as smart, inherently not as hardworking. Um, uh, I think these are fed to us um, day in and day out in in overt and covert ways. Yeah, yeah. We're all told these stories, and we don't even think about how complicit we are with them. We just go along with them. Sometimes in a more subtle way, not like, you know, black people are violent, black people aren't as smart, like, but in more subtle ways where we don't even think of it as that sort of cancerous or that sort of racist mm-hmm. um, but they're there okay mm-hmm. two terms I want you to define them that you just mentioned uh, gospel and race now you uh, I, I think it was some of uh, Lisa, Lisa Sharon Harper's definitions yeah. of, of race maybe you could use that as a springboard well, well Lisa what she does in her book The Very Good Gospel which I highly recommend is she tries to outline the differences between ethnicity, culture, nationality, and race. And um, her claim, and I agree with her, is, you know, nationality has to do with, you know, country of origin and such. Uh, Ethnicity, which is what you find in the Bible, that's really the only word you find in the Bible, uh, is, you know, in terms of, you know, the particular, not just place you come from, but, you know, the the language, the history, all that there. Uh, uh, culture is much is fluid. It's it's uh, it. You know, you're not going to find that word in the Bible, but you're not going to find race in the Bible as well. But race is a is a political and social construct, and uh, th- that determines uh, power and hierarchy and such. Uh, Willie James Jennings has also done some good work on this in the Christian Imagination, where he talks about the origins of race, where it is a category that's created that has been created to determine. Um, hierarchy and such. Uh, And so for for me, race is not about seeing people, you know, know, we think about the KKK, we think about torches, we think about um, all the overt ways that racism is manifesting in our world. Uh, But at the core, um, I'm 
I'm not just seeing other people as inferior. Uh, now society is organized in that particular way as well. Uh, yeah. To give advantages to some and disadvantages to others based on the color of their skin. Uh, and so to talk about race, I mean, you've got to talk about it in individual, interpersonal, and institutional ways to really get, get at the, the whole of it. Yeah. Okay, before we get to the definition of gospel, uh, you mentioned the book, and I forget where it was, but there, there are definitions of racism where white people typically look at like behaviors, like, okay, that was a racist act. Um, yeah. But uh, I think you're saying that a, a black definition of racism more involves the use of power. I don't have the quote in front of me. Can you just, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, w- I, w- I would say um, uh, Michael Emerson has done some good work on this here. Uh, in, I mean, his book on Divided by Faith with Christian Smith. And he writes about, he's also done some other articles on this here, where uh, white folks tend to view race in that kind of individualistic kind of a way. Whereas uh, people of color uh, tend to, uh, and this is for the most part, uh, large categories in broad brushing in some way, uh, see the larger institutional systemic realities at work. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, it's, if, if, if we can say I'm a nice person, I don't see people in this kind of a way, the conversation should end here. I think what's missing there is racism is not just about your intentions. Racism is also about how things are ordered in society to give advantages to some and disadvantages to others. Uh, So one sees it more in the institutional collective systemic way. The other tends to see it in the more privatized individualistic way. I think we need to hold on to to all of it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in the book about Emerson and Christian Smith's work is that the... uh, the classic strategy that many evangelicals have leaned on for, for conversion mm-hmm. and friendship being the solution to racism. Why do you think that they're, they're saying that that is short-sighted or somewhat anemic in the actual work we need to accomplish? I think history has shown, and that, you know, their argument is, if you can just make some friends, that will kind of end racism, which is an argument that many, uh, particularly white evangelicals, hold on to. Um, and, you know, people of color as well who are in the evangelical camp. Just make some friends and racism. And so, you know, it's, you know, have a pulpit swap and uh, invite someone over for dinner. Uh, and I think while that might be helpful, it's, in, it's incredibly limited because, uh, again, racism is not just an individual thing. It's an institutional thing. Uh, the conversion strategy as well, uh, which is the other argument, if we can just get more people to follow Jesus, then racism will come to an end. Well, um, there have been a lot of Christians who are racist, all, often in the name of Jesus as well. Yeah. And so I think the question is, uh, you know, we have this line at New Life when we talk about our genograms, that Jesus might live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. And uh, we, we, have been, <laughs> so um, we have been deeply entrenched in particular in a, in a racialized society. So while you can say, yes, I trust in Jesus... History has shown, Jamar Tisby has demonstrated this in his wonderful book, Color of Compromise, Mm -hmm. that some of the worst racism comes in the name of Jesus. Um, And so we have to contend with that. Yeah, that's, uh, Tisby's book is uh, is pretty heartbreaking, and it's a painful read for many, Mm -hmm. uh, especially those of us who are somewhat white evangelical to go, okay, this is is what's in my bones. Jesus is in my heart, but this is what's in my bones. Yeah. One further clarification point. So the idea of just befriending someone of a different race than you, 
it, it might be a great place to start. It's a good thing to do, but to say that it is the end and that it is the goal is short-sighted. Yeah, right. It's it's very short-sighted, and what happens is th- this is why multi-ethnic congregations um, are often powerless to address race because we we begin and end there, and so multi-ethnicity uh, becomes more aesthetic. Uh, where look at who we have, and so to use New York City language, um, you know, uh, subway cars are diverse. Uh, and you know, you go down, yeah. you, know, you take a take a trip to Manhattan. You're gonna you're gonna find a group of diverse people in close proximity together, and uh, who are whose lives are not intersecting with one another. We're not bearing witness to something different. We're just a group of people who are look different in close proximity. And the church takes on this sanctified subway car kind of appeal, where if we just get different people in the room, that would be enough. But again, um, if we're going to address race, it, it must be done on those three layers minimally, that individual, interpersonal, and institutional layer as well. And, and I would say from my experience, one of the things that I've had to learn is that just to get uh, more black people in the subway car, to use your metaphor, mm-hmm. um, while that might be a great place to start, what often happens is if you have a predominantly white church and you bring in just a small amount of diversity, what happens is that diversity has to kind of play into the white way of doing church. And so Mm -hmm. we have a representation without an actual experience and the essence of what uh, these, these people bring to the church. And so we've made them play into the parts that we, we want filled out. Yeah. Push the metaphor further. You open the door, black people get in, Asian people get in, but, uh, but the driver's still white. And so uh, we're going in a particular direction. Yeah. For sure, and that is I, okay. Th- there's this great line: "The last and the greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason." Um, mm. One of the things that, that that sticks out to me is that you you do the wrong thing, but you think you're doing the right thing. And the right thing is, hey, let's get more representation of you know the full body of Christ. But right. then what happens is that you, in some ways, you enslave them into being white, and like you make them act instead of representing the full image of God that each different, you know, ethnicity brings to the table, you make them just become, you know, cookie cutter into one. Yeah, at the end of the day, like, the the goal is not diversity. The goal is not representation. The goal is solidarity. The goal is love. The goal is justice. And if uh, the, 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 the painful illusion is you can have representation and you can have diversity but still not have solidarity uh, and justice. And, um, and so we look the part, uh, but we lack the power thereof. Can you define what you mean by solidarity? What I mean is, are we taking seriously the pain, the histories, the struggles, uh, the cries of people who have been uh, treated in particular ways in society? And are we joining our voices, joining our very lives, to see them treated as, as not just people um, uh, who are equal under the law, you know, but mm-hmm. but treat people as people made in the image of God, and so solidarity is a willingness to join my uh, my own voice, my own life, uh, for the sake of seeing other people uh, treated as people made in the image of God and treated justly in this society. Uh, that's good. That's good. Okay, now. Let's get your definition of gospel because I think your definition of gospel is going to connect to that very notion of what we're trying to do. 
Yeah, for me, the gospel is not about some aspect of atonement theory, and the gospel is not some post-mortem um, reality where this you die and, and the good news is you go to heaven. I think uh, fundamentally the gospel is good news about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, ascended Lord, is the good news. And because Christ is Lord, He is making all things new, and He's doing it through a particular new family that's created in His name. Uh, and so for me, the gospel is Jesus is Lord, uh, and everything flows from there. If it doesn't start from there, uh, we're going to have a hard time um, really addressing some of the areas in society because uh, what people say, focus on the gospel. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, that you're forgiven or that you go to heaven when you die. It makes makes sense why, why people who hold that perspective of the gospel tend to have very little power in terms of addressing some of the social ills of our society. Yeah, for sure. I think it was... Uh I think it's Scott McKnight who talks about this in the King Jesus Gospel, this idea of, yes, you're forgiven of sin so that you don't go to hell and uh, you can go to heaven after you die. Like, that's a good thing, but no one in the first century is going to think that's what the gospel is. They're not going to say that's wrong, but none of them are going to go, oh, that's what the gospel means. I mean, I think your definition is great. Yeah. I mean, Dallas Willard says, you know, uh, know, uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you didn't have to. He he died so you can join him, you know? So that's a whole different way of seeing the gospel. Uh, That's a, Jesus didn't die on the cross so you have to, but you can join him. Yeah, that's far more uh, compelling. And that is far more consistent with the teachings of a man who said that you, if you want to follow me, you, you must carry your cross. That's exactly and, right. And die daily. Uh, that is far more consistent than the, hey, say this prayer so that you can have this eternal life insurance. Um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's good. It, it's, it also won't like sell as well. Like that's not going to like move as well uh, in Barnes and Noble, I can just tell you that much. Um, Definitely not. But it's, it's, the gospel work is the sort of reconciliation. Now, you would say that reconciliation is an important word. You say this in the book. Um, but in recent years, you've had some ambivalence about using it because of the way it's been stripped out of its power in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. Can you help us understand that how the word reconciliation has been stripped of its power? Yeah, reconciliation is, for, for I think for many, uh, reconciliation is about diversity and about, you know, everyone getting together. and But the challenge of reconciliation is reconciliation can't happen without truth. And in some of the uh, evangelical movements and such of reconciliation, uh, there is an inability to actually sit with the reality of history and how things are the way they are today. And so there's a jump to resurrection. There is a jump to new creation without, first of all, looking at the ways that the world, why is the world the way it is today? And so for me, reconciliation often is, um, uh, that language is used to actually avoid the cross. Uh, But you can't be reconciled unless you actually go through the cross first. Uh, And that's not just good theology, that's good ethics as well. And I think for, for how I've experienced the language of reconciliation is, let's just get some white guy to preach at this church, some black guy to preach at this church. Let's do some good promise keepers, foot washing and all that there. And again, um, I think that, that, that has its place for sure if that's going to lead to something more systemic. But if that just becomes the end be all, you know, we're going to wash somebody's feet, look at what we've done, praise the Lord, we've overcome. 
um, I, 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 I don't think that is what true reconciliation is about. So I have no problem when people, I have lots of debates with people whether reconciliation is a word that we should be using. Um, and if people mean by, if, if by reconciliation, people are saying, particularly in this country, you know, Mark Charles, uh, you know, Native American theologian, he's been at, at our church speaking before. He doesn't use the word reconciliation. He uses the word conciliation, where he says there's never been a time where we've been reconciled in the first place or consoled wow. in the first place. And while I don't, I don't go as far as Mark does there because I think it is a biblical word. I think it is an important word that needs to be properly nuanced. Um, I think he's saying something really important yeah. where um, it's easy for us to imagine a history that never was. That's, that's a pretty strong take. Um, I, I do agree with you. Obviously, if you're going to use Christian language, you're going to talk about reconciliation. It's there, but I, I think his point is very poignant and uh, it definitely mm-hmm. needs to be heard. And uh, especially by people uh, like me who are white people. Now, in the book, you talk about that there is some level of expectation that white people have to um, you know, take the first step or you know, initiate mm-hmm. some of this. Help, help me understand why that is something that I need to do, we need to do. Yeah, I think the, the, Jesus calls us, and this is Philippians 2, if we're going to follow Jesus, there is a divestment of power for the sake of love. Mm-hmm. And um, if we're talking about race, if we're talking about anything for that matter, I think the question we need to be asking is, who has power? And what does it mean to lay it down? Now, some would say, I don't have power, but they might have the benefit of social power uh, benefiting from it, although they might not feel like they have it in their possession. And so what I mean by that is um, when we're having conversations on, let's just say a race for that matter, uh, those who have benefited from it, I think, need to lead the way in listening first. It's not that we, we all shouldn't be listening to each other in this uh, bond of mutuality, uh, but someone has to lead the way. And the one who leads the way are those who have been the beneficiaries of the way that social power has been organized. Yeah. Uh, and so men should be listening to women. Those who are upwardly mobile financially need to be listening to those on the margins economically. White people need to be listening to people of color, so on and so forth. I think that's a Christ-centered way of living in the world. Yeah. And, and I like the language of we need to be listening. Like that, mm. that is a tangible first step. And let's listen let's do something let's let's let that be um what we'd leave with is listening listening to other people's experience now you Mm -hmm. make the observation that when it comes to conversations on race our level of offendability often reveals the level of our maturity and so when we listen when we get easily offended that that says something to us that should be an indicator of the level of maturity that we have within our heart how can we move past that sort of painful process of being offended and hearing things that we don't want to hear so that we can actually get to that sort of conciliatory work. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I'm trying to hold together values and, and streams of formation that are often segmented. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I talk about contemplative rhythms, racial justice, interior examina- examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. The interior examination portion of it is not to be seen in its own silo, but is to be connected to the work of justice and and, and race and such. Uh, and so, uh, when I say one's, uh, you know, the level of your maturity can be often determined by your level of un- offendability. It's we. I can speak for myself. Uh, I. It's very easy for me 
to not do the hard work of introspection whenever uh, I have a disproportionate reaction to something. And every time I have a disproportionate reaction to something, it's revealing something in my soul. Mm -hmm. The question is, um, do I have the patience? And do I have enough... um, Can I engage in enough uh, uh, compassionate self-confrontation to sit with my angst, to sit with my uh, defensiveness? so as to untangle kind of the the tensions there and say what's at work here and why is this keeping me from entering into somebody else's space uh, whom I might not necessarily agree with Um, that is long protracted hard contemplative exhausting work which is why a lot of people don't do it Uh, but I think if we're going to speaking for the church you know or about the church unless unless we're able to do that kind of introspective work we're going to really have a hard time being present with people uh, because we are so caught up in our own uh, offense, uh, which ultimately reveals the lack of maturity on our end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so some of the work that you're saying that we have to do is the stuff that is uh, on the lower decks of life, like the, the lower decks of our heart. Uh, mm-hmm. Those things come to the surface often in moments of crisis or pain or discomfort. And obviously, in these conversations about race, uh, when we are offended, that's in some ways those, those things on the lower decks that are coming back up. Now, l- let me just say for my listeners, he uses the metaphor of lower decks because he's a fan of the, the movie The Titanic. That's um, right. Which is just a peculiar thing that, I mean, you didn't need to put that in the book, um, but I appreciate your honesty and your willingness to admit that. I think what happened was, I think it came out in 1997, if I, yep. and I think it was at that time where I was working at Sony Theaters in Manhattan. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I was, you know, I was, I was the concession guy, and so I saw, I saw movies all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think it was playing that day, and I just, I mean, I fell in love with it, man. What can wow. I say? I saw it uh, probably the same time when it was in the theater as you did, and I didn't have that same reaction. And uh, I don't know what that says about me uh, or you, but uh, it's the truth, and uh, that's great. Uh, so here's the, Rich. You know, we we had some technical difficulties when we started this podcast. You know, we're we're running a little bit behind, um, but I feel like this came together. Like I feel. I like, think so, man. Yeah, I feel like all this, all these uh, technical difficulties. In the words of Rascal Flats, you know, God bless the broken road. That led us to this podcast. So there you go. <laughs> I don't know who Rascal Flats is, but uh, yes, you do. I, I, I trust. Uh, <laughs> you don't know who Rascal Flats is? Um, I think I might have heard the name as I was driving to North Carolina and happened upon a Christian radio station. Nope, not uh, Christian. Uh, no, you have been not. listening to L- enough white people if you've never heard of Rascal Flats. L- like I said, if I am DMX man, uh, if I'm going to go into <laughs> UFC, I, so. But I trust you, man. I, I'll Google them. Don't, don't. I think we're good. I think we're good. Rich, I feel like this, this came together. Uh, the podcast, the deeply, or the book is the deeply formed life. Highly recommend it. And um, yeah, man, I'm glad we did this. Thanks so much, man. I'm glad we persevered. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>